wait on the edge of your chair as we bring the white coat investor himself, Dr. Jim Dolly, back on the show for an informative curbside consult. We go into PSLF, establishing a relationship with a financial planner, banking, and investing are all part of the fun. Come in and check it out. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to this month's Curbside Consult. The financial residency community is full of incredible physicians and their spouses desiring to achieve a high level of confidence in their finances. Not only are they pursuing the right things to get that done, they're asking the right questions to fully understand rather complicated finance related stuff. This time around, we gather five questions from the community and Jim Dolly and I give our best answers. If you'd like to be featured on the show, make sure you go to financialresidency.com slash question and tell us what's on your mind. So let's jump right in and answer those questions. Back on the show to do a curbside console with me is Dr. Jim Dolly. Thank you again for being on the show. Excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to do the curbside console. Our first question comes from Jenna. My husband is currently PJY2 of three emergency medicine and on the repay program. We have signed with a nonprofit employer for post training. I currently make a salary of between forty to fifty thousand, but plan on working very little once we're done with training. We never thought about pursuing public service loan forgiveness when we were in med school. As for EM, it's very variable whether or not you'll work for a nonprofit agency. My husband has around $200,000 of federal loans, no private, and has been making just the minimum payments through residency. Is public service loan forgiveness always the best choice, even with being on the repay program? Thanks for any help. I think public service loan forgiveness is kind of a no-brainer in two situations. One, you got to be working for a 501c3. You have to be fully employed by you know, either a VA or a military employer or a nonprofit. So that's number one. If you're not, you might as well refinance and get busy paying off your loans. Mm-hmm. Number two, you have to have made a whole bunch of really low payments during your training. If you, didn't, if you weren't enrolled in IBR or pay or repay during your training – uh, and made two or three or four years or more of these really low payments, these $100 a month payments, there's not going to be a lot left to forgive by the time you get to public service loan forgiveness. And so I think for those who can meet those two requirements, I think it's pretty much a no-brainer to go for public service loan forgiveness. Even if you're doing an emergency medicine residency, you get out after just three years, so you're seven years at that point away from public service loan forgiveness, I think it's worth dragging it out that long to be able Mm. to get 100000 or 200000 of tax-free money basically given to you. I think that's worth the risk. And it's really not that risky as long as you continue to live like a resident and save up a side fund that you could use to pay off those loans in the event that Congress changes their mind about public service loan forgiveness. Thank you so much for saying that. So what I typically tell people is, you know, you've got, let's say, your minimum payment that you have to make. And we're going to make this super easy. It's going to be 800 bucks. Okay, that's your minimum, whatever your debt level is. That's what your repay 
payment is. And the standard payment would be 2000. I would say open up a taxable account, or if you haven't maxed some of the other stuff, like if an HSA is available, things like that, and put that $1,200, actually invest that $1,200 somewhere. Save it. If you're ultra conservative, throw it in the bank. I don't care. Just don't spend it. Because if anything did happen, which I think, I mean, I'd probably put it at like 10% chance or less at this point, considering that they're creating side funds for servicers who gave wrong information, I think PSLF will, will be here. But if, if it wasn't here or if something happened or if you change jobs and just decide like how my wife and I did it four and a half years in that, hey, this, this actually isn't the best option because we can make more money doing something else. Or in my wife's case, she didn't want to work early right as she finished she wanted to take a year off and be with our kids because they were super young then you have that money there that wasn't spent that could be used to pay down that debt so excellent excellent advice okay so our next question comes from ryan so i'm married with five kids and because i have so many dependents when i signed up for income-based repayment my estimated payment for my student loans is zero and it has been through the duration of residency does that mean that time is not accruing for my loan forgiveness? I know it's a specific question, but maybe you can speak generally about it. Thank you. Okay. So the truth of the matter is $0 payments count toward yeah. the 120 payments you have to make for public service loan forgiveness. In fact, that's ideal. Zero payments, $0 payments are awesome because the difference, the amount that's left to be forgiven after 10 years in the public service loan forgiveness program is the difference between, you know, a standard 10-year repayment plan payment and what you actually made during your residency and fellowship. So if you're making $100 a month payments or you're making $0 a month payments and what those payments would be under a 10-year plan is $2,000 or $3,000 a month, that amount is the amount that gets forgiven. So yeah, that's ideal. You want to have those super low payments. In fact, a lot of people go to a lot of trouble to mess around with their financial lives to try to get those payments lower. You know, you see these people filing their taxes, married, filing separately, even though it's increasing their tax burden, it may lower their required payments by more than that and allow them to get more money forgiven in the end. And so yes, that's a good thing to have to have low payments. And that's typical for a, a single earner resident that's married with multiple children. That's not unusual at all to have $0 payments. Yeah, exactly. You want those $0 payments. That's, that's ideal. So you've got basically 120 payments. If you're going for PSLF, you have 120 qualified payments that you need to make. And most common misconception on this is that they have to be consecutive. They don't. You just need to make 120. And they need to be logged with the servicer to make sure that you hit that. But these $0 payments count. And it is phenomenal if you can actually do this correctly and have $0 payments the entire time you're in training because that is going to be significantly cheaper than the standard payment you're going to make towards the end in year nine when you're actually making a bunch of money. Yeah, I mean, look at somebody that does pediatric pulmonology or, oh. or some other six or seven year program, yep. right? Yep. If you can get $0 payments for six or seven of those 10 years, you're going to hardly pay anything toward your loans and you're going to get two or $300,000 forgiven. It's really can be quite a windfall if, if you do it right. So yep. now if you're married to another resident, if you're married to an attending, if you're married to a dentist, this isn't going to work out so well for you because there's yep. not going to be that big of a difference between a 10-year program and your IBR, your repay payments. It's just mm -hmm. not going to be a big difference. There's not going to be much left to forgive. But for those who are a single earning resident that want to go into academics, this is your program, public service loan forgiveness. 
Yep. I can completely agree. And, and this is where personal finance is personal, right? Everyone can do different things, but if you are married to another high income earner, this makes it quite difficult. It, it does. And, and this strategy might not work. I, I mean, I've, I've literally heard of people who are both physicians, not actually getting married, but having the ceremony doing everything, but not legally getting married just to skirt this and try to have it work. I mean, the student loan problem, we have a big problem as a nation, not just physicians, like just as a nation with close to $2 trillion that people are, are willing to do these kind of things. But yeah, yeah, it's a problem when people are willing to change how they file their taxes, when they're willing to, you know, have kids or not have kids or get married or not get married just to deal with their student loans. That's a problem. I agree. Here's the thing. And this sounds counterintuitive coming from my business. If you have to pay someone to understand student debt, we have a problem as a nation. Yeah, for sure. I I honestly believe that I should never have to, I should be able to advise on debt, but I shouldn't have to learn a crap ton of information and keep up with all the policy change and all these things happening to understand something as basic as paying for school. Right. Absolutely agree. It's amazing that it is. But while we have the system where we really can't fix it, hopefully over time we can, you have $0 payments. Awesome for you. Hopefully you can do it the entire time. So our next question comes from Hillary. Hi, Ryan. My name is Hillary and I'm the wife of a third year med student. My question is, when is the right time to establish a relationship with a financial planner? I feel pretty good about our game plan right now and how much we are saving and doing this and that with. And I learn a lot from you and other groups that I'm a part of online. So at what point is free advice not enough anymore? Thanks. The right time to establish a relationship with a financial planner is as soon as you need financial advice. That depends on the person. You know, there are some people that are just hardcore do-it-yourselfers. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to pay for advice. They don't want to take advice. They're going to go read three books rather than schedule a two-hour appointment with a financial planner. And for those people, there, there probably isn't a right time to establish a relationship. Those people might every now and then want to go get a second opinion, pay somebody for a couple of hours of their time and get a second opinion. But for for those sorts of people, they're not really in that market. Now let's talk about the other 80% of docs. Most docs need and want a good financial planner. And the time to go get that advice is as early as you can. I mean, for some people, as a medical student, it makes sense to get advice. If it helps you to manage your student loans properly, that could easily pay for the time you spent with a financial planner. Certainly, I think as you move into residency, it's time to get a financial plan in place. And if you need to see a financial planner to do that, that's the time. I think as an intern, go see somebody. If nothing else, it'll help you get your life insurance and your disability insurance in place and uh, you know, get a written financial plan. So if you're beyond that point and still have no financial plan, it's time to go meet with somebody. You know, if you're a senior resident, if you're a young attending, you know, now's the time. You don't need to wait until you've accumulated $100,000 in savings or a million dollars in savings or something like that to meet with somebody. There's plenty of good, high-quality financial planners out there that do not have minimum assets required for you to meet with them. I think that's great advice. And so one of the things I, I would kind of add on to that is there are a ton of resources out there to help you do it yourself. Right. And I think, Jim, what you provide is for the hardcore DIY people, a really good framework of how to get things done. I think people, when you look at the timing and, and structure, do you need a full fledged financial plan with all this, the bells and whistles in, in residency? No, you don't. And 
That's coming from a planner that's married to a physician. You don't need it. You need maybe an abridged thing that you can either DIY or pay someone a small amount of money to just get you down on the right path. And that's what this whole podcast, this show right here with you is on, is trying to get people just down the right path, right? Don't go, well, actually I say, go to those free steak dinners, eat the steak, have a great time. Do not buy what they are selling because <laughs> that free advisor, I just saw another post and actually this one was in the physician finance group. It was, uh, hey, we have a free advisor and uh, that was provided to us and they want to sell us oh. insurance and, it, and should we do it? And it's like, well, what type of insurance? Oh, it's just whole life insurance. You're like, that guy is not free or gal. Not, <laughs> that is not free advice. That is so conflicted. There's so many conflicts of interest in that advice. Um, you, you know, you say guy or gal, but I'll tell you what, I've run into very few female insurance agents selling whole life insurance. I don't know why, but that is really a male dominated industry. Well, I could see if it was just like a uh, outside independent broker kind of doing that thing, uh -huh. but there are a lot and it's growing and I love it because I have some really great advisor friends in this space that are fee only in this space that are planners that are doing an awesome job. But there are a lot of advisors out there that are fee-based. NAFA did that study. It was 97% of all advisors are fee-based advisors, not fee wow. only. Wow. So that's a lot that's a of higher people. percentage than I would have guessed these days. Yeah. We're like the unicorn hiding in the back here going, hi, we're, we exist. Like we're, we, we don't have conflicts of interest or as many as you look at it, but you know, going to an advisor that can sell you insurance first red flag, like fee-based Go find someone who can't sell insurance, but that can give you advice. If you if you don't know how you're paying your advisor and you don't know how much you're paying them, you know, you got a problem. Yeah. That's really one of the first things you ought to learn when you're working with somebody is how and how much you're paying them. If you're listening, if you're paying your advisor five figures, you need to find a different advisor. There's no reason yeah. that it costs more than that, in my opinion. And a good, and a good advisor, the fees are going to be on the website. If they're not on the website, that's because they're too high. Mm -hmm. You know, a good advisor is very proud that they're charging you a reasonable fee and they'll put it right up on their website. So for those advisors, listen to this, go put your fees on a website. If you're not, if you're ashamed to do that, you're probably charging too much, but it's, it's really a mark of being, getting advice at a fair price is that you can go to the website before you ever meet with the person and know what they're going to charge you. Yeah. So, you know, to fully answer Hillary's question here. I think you can crowdsource. If you're the type of person that is DIY, you can crowdsource all this stuff. You can go look at all these different websites, books, all that, and you can do it yourself. If you want a second opinion, I know some advisors, I do second opinion. Some advisors do that. If you are the type of person that, you know, you just don't want to do these things, you need to find a fee-only planner. And it really is right at this point where you're just finishing training and the big bucks are starting to roll in. Do not let lifestyle inflation kick in and you have a bunch of, you have several years of bad habits and then try to come fix it. Solve the problems now early and do it. So thank you, Hillary, for the question. Our next question comes from Shelby and this one is out of the Facebook group. So I'm going to read this one to you. What are the effects of changing banks? We'll be purchasing a home in the next nine months and I don't want to mess anything up as far as that goes. We have used Wells Fargo for 18 years. But in light of all the negative press, that's a lot of press, we've been talking about changing. Should we look into local banks or online banks? Who do you love? All right. Well, first of all, I didn't realize that Wells Fargo still had clients. So you got to leave Wells Fargo. I mean, just time and time and time again, 
they have basically hosed their clients. You know, I don't have great hope that they're going to fix the culture in that company. So yeah, if you're at Wells Fargo, I'd move. Anywhere else is better than Wells Fargo. I can't think of a worse bank to be at right now. I mean, I hate to throw somebody under the bus like that, but come on. If that's the culture you've inculcated at your, at your institution, you don't deserve to be in business. So what are the effects of changing banks? Well, it's a little bit of a pain, right? Because if you look at your checking account, you got a lot of sources of income coming into it that you've got an automatic deposit and you got a bunch of bills probably that are set on auto pay. And you've got to reset all of those, all your credit cards, all your utility bills, all your paychecks and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's a gradual process. You try to change as many as you can think of, and then you wait a month or two and you see what else gets either deposited into or taken out of that account, and then you fix those. So it does take a little while. That's why Mm -hmm. usually they offer you some money to change checking accounts from one bank to another. So yeah, I think it's going to take a little while to change banks, but I think it's worth doing. So who do I love? Well, I think there's lots of good banks, both local and online. I think credit unions are a great option as well. Sometimes they don't have as many features as a good bank might, though. They just don't have the money. But a lot of times they make up for it with a little more personal service. They make up for it with a little bit lower rates when you're borrowing money. And sometimes they pay you a little higher, uh, although definitely not always. So I can tell you who I use. I've got a local credit union here in Salt Lake that I use for my business account, Hmm. that I use for my kids' accounts, and I have a little tiny personal account there. I have a high-yield savings account at Ally Bank. It's totally online. There's no brick or mortar. It's always at or near the top of what high-yield savings banks are paying. And so I've basically got a savings account there. I have been with USAA that I'm eligible for by virtue of my military service. I've been there for... I don't know, 15 years for my checking. I think the banking services there are pretty good. I'm sure there are other banks that are also quite good. But what I'm looking for are people that aren't charging me a bunch of fees for my checking and that will reimburse all my ATM fees and that don't give me a lot of hassle. And when I screw up, you know, once every couple of years and end up getting a fee, they'll waive it. That's basically all all I'm looking for out of a checking account. And USAA does that for me. But I'm sure there's plenty of other banks that can provide that sort of service. Since I'm not buying insurance, I'm not buying investments or anything like that through a bank, which I think is usually a mistake. You know, I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. I'm just looking for basic checking services. And uh, USA has been good for me for that. But like I said, I, I think there's a lot of other good places you can go and get that service. Yeah, I like it. And I think you made it sound a little easier than it is. It is a pain in the ass to change banks. And it really is. It is tough. But I actually like this question, Shelby, because I had been a member of Wells Fargo since we opened my first checking account when I was 12. And (laughs) I closed it. And I'm so happy I did. I can't believe the culture and everything. So what I did, and this does, again, does not make it right because Jim does one thing, I do another. I have almost all of my personal banking at Ally. And what I've done, it's, it's super easy to set up accounts. My trust sets up these accounts. Uh, I've got checking and a bunch of different savings for different goals and different things. I love the idea that it's a high yield savings account, super easy to transfer money in and out. I don't go to physical banks. I really don't use cash that much. So I primarily use credit cards, pay them off every month to get rewards and things like that. All of my credit cards are through Chase. Chase has phenomenal rewards and everything. All of my business accounts, because I have several businesses, all of that is at Chase Bank. And it was just super easy to use. And I figured I'm all about simplicity. So if I ever need to grab cash or go into a bank for a reason, and I do have a small little personal account at Chase, but 
I use them as my brick and mortar and I, I use Ally exclusively for everything personal. I have two banking relationships. If Ally did business banking, I would probably just do everything at Ally, but I do love Chase for their, their credit cards or rewards and, and everything like that. Yes, you can go to local credit unions. I find that uh, with them, even if they compensate you a little bit more, their technology is usually terrible. Yeah, I agree. The technology is terrible at my credit union. It's it's gotten better over the years, but it still doesn't compare to a big national bank. It, it can't. I mean, you can't compete with the big boys that have billions of dollars. Like it's just it's not feasible. But that drives me nuts. I want something that I can like pop on my phone, finger or face thing on my iPhone, and I log in, I can see all my stuff, and it's not like I'm clicking like in a 1998 website. Yeah, um, you know the problems I've run into not having brick and mortar are basically threefold. One's getting cash, but you can kind of deal with that with ATMs. Two is depositing large checks. It's cool having an app on your phone to just deposit checks, but they've all all got some sort of upper limit, usually like five grand. So you got a $6,000 check and now what do you got to do? You got to mail it? I mean, it's just crazy, right? And so it's nice to be able to just stop by a nearby bank and deposit checks like that. And then the other issue I have run into is the need for a notary public. That is, I was the And one so thing. even if you only put $100 into a local credit union, you know, at least you've got that service available to you. We just <laughs> used that with, with the house. And it's funny you say that because I was like, you know, the one downside to an online bank is you can't. But I thought wires would be hard and because I do everything on Ally. Wires were super easy. Nope. What about like cashier's checks? That thing can be a little bit of a pain too using an online bank. Yeah. That definitely could. So that's why we ended up with a credit union account, even though we don't keep a lot of money there. You know, most of the money is at Vanguard, but mm-hmm. if it's sitting in a savings account, it's it's at Ally. Yeah, no, it makes it easy. And the other one is depositing cash. Like if you're rolling in the dough, for some reason you're doing some type of cash side gig or whatever, you're going to go buy a money order and then send it to Ally Bank. Like that doesn't make any sense. They've right. figured that it's out yet. So. Yeah, someone someone buys a, your old car from you for cash. What are you going to do with the money? You know, it can be a little bit of a pain. So I like one brick and mortar and one uh, online bank if I was going to go that route. Let's talk about a related question. How about these high yield checking accounts? What do you think about those? I don't know if it's truly going to compete with the high yield savings, like one's going to go away. Like, why do I need both? I personally don't like to keep a lot of money in a checking account because I have nothing tied to my savings, no debit cards, no, obviously no checks, no nothing. Unless someone like, you know, has a key logger on my computer or I get a virus or someone hacks my stuff, my savings are going to be pretty good, but someone can duplicate a check. I've had that happen twice now in Hmm. like the last 10 years where I paid a contractor or something. And then all of a sudden a new check was duplicated and cashed somewhere else. So I I don't like keeping a lot of money. Maybe this is the weirdo in me, but. Well, they don't let you keep a lot of money there. Well, that's not true. They let you, but they don't pay you interest on it. So these are interesting, these high yield checking accounts for the first either 10 or $25,000, they'll pay you three, four, 5% on it. You just got to have a certain number of transactions and they'll only do it for the first 10 to 25,000. But usually they require you to direct deposit your check and do like 12 debit card transactions a month or something there in exchange for that. And I, you know, I've done the math on how much I'd earn and it just isn't that much money. What you make at 3% on $10,000. I've never taken the plunge and tried to do that, but I've had a few people kind of advocate for it. Some of the financial bloggers out there that you can actually make something on your checking account money if you're willing to jump through the hoops. So you bill out at much higher rate than the average person. 
So if we're looking at what you're billing out for an hour's worth of your time versus what someone else that makes, let's say $50 an hour, I don't, we don't need to talk about what you guys all make. If I've got to put 25,000 in the account, I've got to make 11 or 10 or whatever transactions and I'm going to earn 3% on that, that's 60 bucks or 65 bucks. So I just lost out on rewards for the 10 transactions. I had to make sure or potentially even manufacture spending. I, I saw people that were like, I'm going to go buy a pack of gum here and a pack of gum there. And oh, like, right. these are, it's crazy. And you're it's like, crazy. okay, so now you got to use your time to do that. Even the thought process of wasting time in your head thinking like, how could I go manipulate or manufacture spending for $60? I get it. That could be you know 700 bucks at the end of the year. Like that's cool. Except for what could you have done with the time and effort and, and all that? You could have thrown it in a savings account. What is Ally? Like 1.8%. So that 1.2% difference and, and time you wasted, I, I personally don't. It doesn't make a lot of sense for your audience or my audience. Yeah. But the financial, the, the fire audience, physician on fire is talking to this or the fire groups and all that. That right. makes sense for them. Yeah. These guys are living on $25,000 a year. I don't know how, but <laughs> good know, for them. $700 makes a big difference when you're living on 25 grand. So some of it, I'm like, can you guys talk to my wife just for a minute? Uh, <laughs> okay. So our last question here comes from Alan. Alan says, young attending here and finally starting to accumulate some assets, maxing out all the tax deferred retirement options and putting rest of retirement into a brokerage account, putting about 20% gross away. The emergency fund is in place. As you accumulate more money, what do you do with it? Do you put it in the same brokerage accounts as retirement money? Do you keep it in a separate, uh, in separate in case you need it, access to it um, and don't want to touch it? Basically, what are you doing? I mean, I, I think, yeah, you basically, when we're talking about a brokerage or a non-qualified account, you can just have one of those. There's no reason to have separate ones for different retirement goals you may have. If you're putting money in there to buy a house in 10 years or for the next car you're going to buy and you don't know when that is or, or whether it's retirement money, it can all just be in one big taxable account. There's no reason to complicate your life any more than it needs to be. But yeah, that's basically the question. A lot of people ask me this related question of, of what do I do with my money now that I've maxed out my 401k and my backdoor Roth IRA and my HSA? And the answer is you go invest in a non-qualified account. But I, no, I wouldn't have multiple brokerage accounts. I would just have one and, and invest it all there. Mm -hmm. So what I've talked about on previous shows is having multiple accounts, like multiple savings accounts is good for short-term goals. Hey, we want to save, we need a new car in a year and a half. I'm going to need 15, 16,000 bucks. I'm going to save a thousand bucks a month until I get it. Cool. Put it in the savings account. You don't need to move it to a taxable and invest it and all this stuff. But when you're looking at like long-term money, retirement money, extra money that's left over, taxable accounts, a great place. We talked about that kind of waterfall strategy, you know, going through, if you have 7% debt, you know, obviously you want to hit that through. I don't think Alan had mentioned any debt on this, but young attending, I'm going to just make an assumption that someone else is in the same boat that has debt. Definitely look at that. But yeah, put it all in the same account. If you've got your excess money and it's some of your emergency fund is getting invested, you know, make sure maybe you hold a little bit more short-term, safer bonds, something like that to compensate. But yeah, all in the same account. I don't think it's this. If you have an issue of, hey, I don't know what I can save for my house and retirement's on one piece, or if your spouse is not on board and says, oh, we've got all this to go buy a house, then I could see a reason for two taxable accounts. We said, hey, this money is retirement money. This money is for the house. You know, we're going to fund them equally. But, you know, it's at least a roadblock to make sure you're not going to go buy too big of a house because you got a whole bunch of money there. 
I can understand that. It's all just kind of mental accounting, you know, sometimes that's all it is. It's the same with if you want to open multiple savings accounts or you just want to have one savings account and keep track of it on on a spreadsheet. It's all really the same thing. Whatever helps you to be successful and to, you know, mentally account for those things, I think is fine. Yeah, I think a lot of it is the behavioral finance piece, right? Is, Is you're looking at it, if I always looked at it and was said, hey, if we want to take this really special vacation and we're going to save for two years for it and all of a sudden some shiny object comes through am i really going to go pull from that special vacation i've been saving the past 17 months for to go do this and that might be the roadblock for it and i could see this being the case if you're saving up for your first house you've done all the right things and you and your spouse look at it and go whoa we have a lot more money in this taxable account than we thought we would you could be pulling some of that what you earmarked originally for retirement that would be the only time I'd, I'd separate, but I'm more of a fan of just keeping it simple. Amen to that. Simplicity is worth a lot. And I think it our is. financial lives as physicians are complicated enough that we don't need to make it more complicated than it already is. So Jim, for like the four physicians that live under a rock and have no idea who you are, <laughs> can you t- can you tell them a little bit about yourself and uh, where they can hear more about you and find all the bajillion pieces of content that you've created that are just amazing. Sure. I mean, bottom line, I'm a practicing emergency physician. I just went down to half time this year. So I had a little bit more time for, you know, this white coat investor empire. But the white coat investor is really a community of high income professionals, mostly physicians, but with a lot of other high income professionals as well, who's basically trying to help each other to not do dumb things with their money. You know, my goal is to help people get a fair shake on Wall Street. And that started out as a blog. There's also a monthly newsletter. There's a forum. There's a book. There's a podcast. There's a YouTube channel. There's a subreddit on Reddit. There's a Facebook group. You know, we've got Twitter and Facebook social media outreach going on there. Uh, We had a live conference this March. We'll probably do another one here in about a year and a half. We've got some online courses available. So basically, however you like to consume your financial information, We're trying to get that to you. And we title it all White Coat Investor, just trying to build that brand. But, you know, you jump on the internet and you Google White Coat Investor, it'll all pop right up. Awesome. Well, keep up the great work. Thank you so much for being on the show. Honored to have you here. Thank you so much again. Thank you for having me on. In our journal club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on wallstreetphysician.com titled the investing game is won by not losing the author a former trader on wall street and now a physician starts off the article by talking about all the different ways that he was trying to make money in the markets in his prior job i relate to this because when i was a kid growing up in high school i spent several of these same exact things trying to do this beat the market and it's such a fool's game anyway he discusses the thrill of the winners and how we as human beings are addicted to that thrill, you know, placing money on a trade and actually winning. He breaks down some amazing words of wisdom that I'd like to share here. And I quote, success in the investing game is more about consistently avoiding the traps that erode investment returns. He gives us an excellent analogy on the sport of tennis and how most amateur matches are won by the player that had the least unforced errors, not the one that hit the most winners. So what are those traps? He lists five in his article. And I quote, trading too much. Investors are notoriously unsuccessful at trading. When they try to time the market, they inevitably buy high and sell low instead of buying low and selling high. 
and they get eaten up by commissions and the bid ask spreads. The second one is paying too much in fees. When the investors trade too much and are unsuccessful in trading themselves, they often believe they can hire someone who could beat the market. And unfortunately, these fund managers also, on average, fail to beat the market. The third one was not minimizing taxes on profits. You can't keep all your investment gains. And when you make every effort to keep as much of your investment gains by minimizing taxes. And some of those steps to minimize taxes include maximizing the money in tax advantage accounts, minimizing short-term trading and taxable accounts, and placing tax inefficient assets in tax deferred accounts. The fourth trap was taking too much risk. When investors take too much risk, it can be difficult to stay the course when the stock market falls. The paper losses can cause them to lose sleep at night and possibly make rash emotional decisions to sell at the worst possible time. And the fifth trap is taking too little risk. For some investors, taking too little risk can be just as bad as an unforced error on taking too much risk. There are some investors, whether they're fearful of the stock market or for other reasons, choose to hold all their money in CDs or other safe investments. To be honest, in my experience, I see these mistakes all the time. And I'd actually add one, and that'd be paying a financial advisor based on a percentage of your assets under management versus paying them a fixed flat fee. I guess this could technically go hand in hand with the mutual fund expense ratios that he kind of referenced in the second trap, but I feel like it's worth mentioning. I actually had the pleasure of speaking to Wall Street Physician on the phone and and getting to know him a little bit and more about the plans of his website. And he's producing an enormous amount of excellent content that's worthy of not only some praise here, which is why I like to highlight him, but also to gain some additional readers. So I encourage you to go check him out. Wall Street Physician, you know, great work on this article. And I'm definitely going to include this in the show notes over at financialresidency.com. Dr. Dolly never disappoints. He's been incredible in the finance education for physicians. In this episode, we learned a ton about public service loan forgiveness, establishing a relationship with a financial planner, changing banks, and investing extra money. What are some of the specifics? Let's do a quick recap. What we learned about public service loan forgiveness and when it becomes an option. Jim mentioned it would be something to consider if you were fully employed with a 501c3 and actively enrolled in an income-driven based repayment like IBR, pay, or repay. He also mentioned when PSLF doesn't work. So be sure to re-listen to that part of the interview if you don't remember or check out some of the links in the blog we've created for this episode to soak up that knowledge glory. As far as establishing a relationship with a financial planner, call him a bit biased, but it's all good. I'll add, if you are looking for a fee-only financial planner that works exclusively with physicians and their families, I know a guy. Oh wait, whoops, now I'm being a bit biased. Anyways, check out the White Coat Investor blog where there's a vast amount of information available to put people on the right path. Oh yeah, and for a resident dealing with the intricacies of managing student loans, meeting with a competent financial advisor early to help you create an effective debt repayment plan is optimal. Otherwise, you'll develop some really bad financial habits. Don't let that happen. Oh yeah, and what about changing banks? To Wells Fargo or not to Wells Fargo? Well, Jim agreed that you might want to consider leaving Wells Fargo based on the negative reviews and the publicity surrounding how they treat their clients with unethical banking practices. 
I know that we did. He also provided a few pointers on what listeners might want to look at when setting up a checking account. Got some extra money lying around and you need to do something with it? Why couldn't investor generally advised a listener to put their money in a non-qualified account, make it one big old taxable account and investing it all there. With long-term money, such as for retirement or extra money, a taxable account is a great way to go. Take your foot off the will do throttle and keep an open mind as you listen to this podcast. There's a lot of financial advice out there on the airwaves, including what's given to you here on an audio platter. As great as it is, it's hard to know what information suits your financial needs because I don't know that much about you. In fact, I don't know anything. So consult your attorney, CPA, or reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, before taking any action or making any decisions affecting your hard-earned stash. Hope you enjoyed today's show with White Coat Investor. Next week, we have a great show planned. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.